Welcome to the Colors of Fatherhood podcast. Here, we shine a positive light on fathers of color and seek out their stories of trial and triumph while gaining insight on what it means to raise children in this country we call America. A quote from Dr. Franklin Pittman states, Fathering is not something perfect men do, but something that perfects the man. And now, your illustrious host, Lim Gonzalez. What's good, everybody? It's your boy, Lim Gonzalez, a.k.a. Saint, and this is the Colors of Fatherhood podcast. So, of course, we always have to have amazing guests on this show, and tonight is no exception. He is an award-winning performance artist. He is an educator. He is the first beatboxer of late-night television. Ladies and gentlemen, of course, he's an amazing father. That's why he's on this podcast. Joshua Silverstein, everybody. Oh, man, I love that. Pause. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Please, please, keep going. Keep going. Oh, I mean, you know, we could just... There it yeah, is. Oh, oh, my God. It's just so good. It's just so good. Oh my God! Oh man, that's that sounds like good to know. Good to know. Yeah, man, it's all good. I appreciate you being on, man. Um, so first of all, we're recording this. It is the day after Father's Day, so I do want to say Happy Father's Day to you. Uh, how yeah. was your day? How was your day? How did everything go? It was great, man. You know, so I had a wonderful Father's Day. I woke up next to you know the most beautiful woman in the world, and of course, between us is my youngest son who uh, will not sleep anywhere but our bed. So that is my life. And uh, he's almost two. And so I got kicked in the face all night, which is great. My oldest uh, son and my daughter, who's eight, came into our bedroom with gifts. And it was such a sweet moment because my, my kids have somehow learned how to be frugal. They buy me stuff for holidays. Okay. Like they, they'll make gifts too, but like, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I made my parents gifts until I was like, I don't know, 30, right? Like oh. I just kept making them stuff, right? Yeah, I did not so, do that. So yeah, no, no. My, <laughs> my kids, my kids will buy me things. And my son and daughter, they collected money and they pulled it together and they bought me this Lego Batman busk set. Oh wow. So that's that was fresh. I'm a big Batman nerd, and I like Legos. My kids like Legos. Made me cards. They drew pictures, and you know, and and wrote beautiful messages. And my daughter wrote a poem about me. You know, she had it was a school assignment, but okay. it was delightful. And one of the things I'm a, you know, I'm not gonna read it, but I'm gonna paraphrase. And it just listed what she thought about me, and she's and it said cool and funny and hardworking. And I was just like, my kids think I'm cool and funny. And I mean, you know, it, it, it seems shallow, but I never thought my dad was cool or funny. Like I never, my dad was embarrassing. You know, my dad would roll up to my school to pick me up with a fanny pack on his waist. He's a big guy in like tiny shorts, a shirt hanging over his gut. And not, not like a nice fanny pack, like a, like a Fox Hills Mall fanny pack. Black <laughs> leather. Right. That it had for like 20 years. Yeah, yeah. And he didn't care. He didn't, you know, and like, and at the time, this is like the late 80s, early 90s, like youth at that time, you know, fitting in with survival. Oh, bro. Right? Oh, yes, absolutely. absolutely. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yes. Like, it was everything. Like, it was everything. Everything. It was everything. With, with, 
what music you like, what you're wearing. Like, mm-hmm. it was all about, I have to coexist yes. or else I've got no culture. No. Right? No. And so my dad was like, my dad was beloved by the community. You know, my dad was the high school mascot at LA High. Like, he didn't have any kind of concept of, like, what it meant to fit in mm. because he didn't have to. People just loved him. Hmm. I felt so embarrassed by his presence and he could care less. He was like, you know, people just need to accept you for who you are, mm. which is true, you know, but I didn't have any sort of like sense of my identity mattered to him, mm. right? Like that was constantly, uh, you know, a fighting point between my mom, parents and I. Like, like you know, hey, mom, dad, I need, I need to wear, I, my pants can't be too tight. <laughs> I can't. I'll get beat up. I can't. Right, and they're right. like, I don't want you sagging wearing bad clothes. It's like, mom, you understand, if I don't wear these cross-colored jeans, yes. I'm not going to fit in. Yes. And they didn't care. And the fact that my kids know everything about me, mm-hmm. they know my flaws, they know the areas of my addictions, they know my mental stuff, They and they still go, my dad is the coolest, funniest person I know. That's dope. It, I don't know. That means the world to me, no, man. Of course. Absolutely. And I just love that, like, my kids know me. My kids will not grow up thinking that I'm something that I'm not. They'll always know who their father is. They'll always respect who I, who I am. What I love about my family and the tribe that I'm raising and growing with is that they're learning how to love something that's unique and different. And they're, and they're learning how to accept stuff that may not be the norm and love it. And I just, I don't know, man. Yesterday was so rewarding to feel, just to feel loved by my family, to really feel like they see me. I love that. That's dope, man. No, that's really dope. Also, I want to say that this generation, where are we in? Gen Z right now? Yeah, Gen Z. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this generation is very, very keen on authenticity. Authenticity. And so I think when you are your most authentic self, I think that goes a long way. I think when we were talking about, you know, when you were saying, because, you know, we're about the same age, so growing up around the same time, definitely identity and fitting in was so, so important. I remember, like, if I didn't have, like, you were talking about cross-color jeans. Boy, that threw me back. Like, if you didn't have, I had, I didn't have cross-colors. I just had colors. Like they want yeah. the brand cross colors. Like yeah. it was just yeah. fully colors because that's what my mom could afford. She wasn't going to pay that yeah. money. And so, and everybody knew, everybody knew. And yeah. I had to play it off and peg the legs and, and do whatever yeah. everybody else was doing. But really that was it. It really was about, and I didn't catch that authenticity part of it until I was much older and, and I started yeah. being comfortable in my own skin. And so I can tell that your kids appreciate you being your most authentic self. And that definitely is amazing. They really do, man. And I feel like what's been so great is I give them permission to be themselves, mm-hmm. right? Like the way that I show up at home and in my life as me in the fullness they look at that, and despite how weird and quirky it may be, uh-huh. they're like, yeah, dad's a nerd and he's silly and goofy and, and so are we. Like, they love it. They love to own their weirdness. I mean, it's so crazy because my oldest son is Ami. Uh-huh. Ami is 13 and, you know, he is a genius. He's, you know, he's gifted. Uh-huh. He's been tested and he's just, he's off the charts smart. Wow. And so he's a nerd. You know, my wife and I, laugh so much because we grew up in a time where nerds got bullied and no one has ever bullied him. He, he is so 
confident mm. in who he is that he's unflappable. Like he just no one no one can touch him. Mm. And as a result, everywhere he goes, people just love him. You know, like he he always has the answer. He always he's that guy that's like, you know, actually it's this. He's that guy. <laughs> exactly. And everybody Yeah, he loves everyone loves him. <laughs> and I think it has to do with the fact that he gets to see me accepting myself. Mm. And it just gives him permission. And it's just, it's so interesting to see how growing up around my parents, who are still alive today, and having them not really understand how important it was for me to feel accepted, mm. how I internalized that in a way that was very clearly, I want to make sure my kids love themselves. And I want to make sure they love, they love me and see me Yeah. so that there's no surprises. You know, like I grew up thinking my dad and my mom were, were, were one thing. Mm-hmm. And then I got older and I was like, oh, you guys are a bunch of assholes. You know, like it was like, it was like the, the bubble popped, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and all of a sudden your parents aren't superheroes anymore. I love that they see me in all my flaws and still see my excellence. And I think that's just amazing. No, that is. That is. I, I want to talk about, you know, you entering into fatherhood because you do have yeah. an interesting story. Like a lot of fathers, you um, you got with your wife. Mm-hmm. She yeah. already had children. So you obviously became an instant stepfather. What yeah. was that like um, kind of coming into that situation? So my daughter was two and my son was seven when my wife and I started dating. Mm-hmm. Their biological father is just you know, not there. Mm. For them, he was around and he showed up in the way of like, here, you know, the bills are paid, here's some money. But he wasn't giving them any sort of like personality examples. He wasn't, he wasn't a role model. He wasn't a presence Mm. other than this is a person who is called my, my dad, right? There was no real clear identifiers as to what a, what his job was in nurturing who they are as people. And so, you know, my wife had been with with their father, with their biological father for like 15 years. And so when when she and I had started dating and they had they'd been divorced for a few years, I saw the need for that person in their lives. I was like, oh, you know, and I've always wanted a family. I realized in that moment that it is a choice. Right. And I thought if I'm going to step up and be with this woman who I, I'm falling in love with, I'm also falling in love with these kids. And I should step up and play that role as well. And I really chose it. And it was deep because I'm an artist. I'm an only child. You know, I've really only ever had to look out for myself, to pay for myself. I was living alone. I had freedom. You know what I'm saying? So, like, all of a sudden to be in a space of, do, can, can I do this? Am I prepared for this? What does it mean for me to step up into this role like all those questions were looming over my mind and, and I really had to chew, figure out like, is this is really a yes or no? And what I recognized is you're never ready. The only thing that ready means is, am I interested in taking this path to change? Mm. Being a father, choosing to be a parent means that you are about to embrace a journey where everything you thought about yourself is going to be challenged. And if you are not interested in taking that challenge and being challenged and having having people show up in your life who are your greatest reflection of who you are, then no, you're not ready. And so I was very much interested in that. I was ready for that charge. I was I was saying yes to all of it. And it came at me so quick hmm. and so fast. And and I jumped right in. And so 
it really has been such an amazing example of nurture versus nature, right? Mm -hmm. Like my two oldest are not my biological, but you wouldn't know that. Mm -hmm. I mean, luckily we're all the same complexion. So people don't go out and go, wait a minute, you know, like we're all brown. So they go, yeah, I see it, you know, and you know, my son's got a big nose. I have a big nose. So people go, yeah. The only thing that people kind of go, wait, wait, huh? Is, you know, my kids are Mexican Mm -hmm. and I'm not, you know? So, so there's, there is that, but my daughter, for the longest was like, well, my mom, I'm Mexican, my dad's black, right? Like she just, that's just her world. I am her father. We don't use step in our household. Like I'm dad. And when people ask about the biology, they go, yeah, yeah, but that's my dad. Right. You know what I'm saying? There's no question about it. And these are my kids. Like they have absorbed who I am, what my essence is, what my values are, what our values are as a family. And it is who they are. Like they are growing up Silversteins, right? And it's really amazing to see who they were when we first became a family morph and evolve into who they are now. And these are completely different people Hmm. because of the presence that I occupied in their lives. And that's no humble brag. That's simply to say that like when someone shows up in your life and really and stands there and takes presence changes something it really has a has an impact and it's very clear that i did that for them and they did it for me because i mean who i was when i first became their father is different than who i am now like you know learning what sacrifice means and learning to live a life that's bigger than just me was something that i had to learn how to do and it wasn't easy so obviously you said you you went right into the role you felt like you were yeah. ready. You know, this is yeah. what it is. Let's bring it on. Because of the nature of the situation with their biological father, did you yeah. feel any added pressure to make sure you were just completely on point? I mean, I could say yes in that there was anger there, right? Like for me, the necessity of making sure that I was very clearly stepping into that role that for me, it wasn't temporary, mm-hmm. that it wasn't an experiment, like that I was like, hey, this is who I am. And, and, and I was very clearly that because of how inconsistent he was and how he how much he didn't show up. I did feel the need to show up more and harder. Mm-hmm. And I was just upset. I mean, I still have anger about it because, you know, he still exists. You know, he'll still call like every now and then. And to them, he's like a distant uncle, hmm. right? You know, that they kind of like, they know they have to talk to him because of the legalities of everything. And like, he gave up legal custody, you know, like just, just didn't want it. And really? so, yeah, like didn't want it. Totally was like, she should have it and, and everything. So part of that is that he has to, that, you know, the court says he has to call and he calls and so they know, mm-hmm. but they don't miss them. They don't talk about them, you know, and, and, and it's really deep. And so there's anger there, you know, there's anger. I, I still feel a lot of like this dude has a lot of audacity to ask for things and, and, and desire things. And we're like, dude, you don't show up for these people. Mm-hmm. Like you've got zero earning rights, you know what I'm saying? And so there's that frustration. They kind of get annoyed by him too, because they're like, does he have to call? Like, do we have to talk to him? You know? And so there's that kind of stuff. One of the things that we thought my wife and I heard a lot as we became more and more of a family was that eventually they were going to maybe resent me or they were going to, you know, do the whole, you're not my real dad thing. Mm -hmm. And they've never done that. That's just not how I see things. We're not playing house. 
know what I'm saying? Like it's real for all of us. And I think what's even, even deeper is when my wife and I had our first biological kid together, mm-hmm. people were like, oh, just wait, when you have your, it's, this is going to be your own. It's different. And mm-hmm. it's not, and it wasn't. It, wasn't. it was like, not at all. Like See, we, had, I, we had, I don't have children. Uh, everyone yeah, yeah. on the podcast knows this. I was thinking, okay, if I come into a situation when, you know, I actually do get married, there's a, a huge percentage that she'll have children, um, especially yeah. anywhere close to my age. So if I did have a child, I was like, I want to make sure I have a child of my own, at least one. So I have, yeah. you know, that yeah. biological presence, that, you know, yeah. carrier of my genes, that whole nine yeah. to make sure that that's a, a point, uh, if it's possible, obviously. But you're yeah. saying that wasn't the case for you. Everyone talks about love. And I always talk about how anyone who says it's all about love has really never been in love. Mm. Because I think if you've really ever been in love, you'll, you know that you fall in and out of it. Mm-hmm. And love is only like one part of anything. There's a whole lot more things that are that are just as important as love. You've heard stories of people who are in love and abuse each other. Oh, yeah. And you've heard stories about people who love and leave each other. Mm-hmm. So love clearly ain't it. I respect my, my family. Like, I choose my family. I don't just love them. I adore them. I need them. You know, like, we need each other. Like, it's so much bigger than just love. Hmm. And so this magic... That people kept telling me about when you know when my wife was pregnant um i was like okay maybe there maybe it's gonna be yeah like yeah all right we had, we had a home birth <laughs> and uh, i was like all right kid i'm gonna i'm gonna see stars and like rainbows are gonna cloud her vagina it's gonna be crazy oh, and like you know i'm sitting there and i'm holding my wife and she's pushing and i'm like yeah and it's beautiful and it's like there's no trauma it's like a lot of love in this room and we we had our son right in front of our tv in our bedroom and like he pops out and he's talking right away and i'm like all right i got three now and that was kind of it and it was just like i adore my children Mm. and it just was like now i got three i got three kids i don't love him any more or any less than my other two and really it was just kind of like well now we're now there's just more of us now there's just more of this thing that we're constantly in they don't look at him as their as their half brother. Mm-hmm. Like we're a tribe, and if anything, he was just more glue to that. Like like now, there's someone in the tribe that has everyone's DNA, and that really was it. The only difference between my olders and him is that I got to change his diaper more. And that's <laughs> there's more poop, right. you know. There's more poop, and you know, because Lila, my middle child, when we first met, I had to change her, I had to clean her up, you mm-hmm. know, I had to shower her. That was it when we were we were coming together. Now, Shell, my my youngest, yeah, it's just there's just more more poop. There's more there's diapers, <laughs> diapers, there's diapers, and there's more crying. I have three kids. That's just how I see it. I that's love it. them all equally and unconditionally. No, that's dope. That's dope. And and I think uh, it's a great way to look at it because you should never obviously show favoritism yeah. against your children. For you to say like, yeah, I came into this. These are my children. And now I just have a third. Now there's just yeah. more love to give with that's the entire it. family. And, and, that's, and that's where it goes. That's it. And I think, I really think when you become a dad, when you be really take on what that means and the responsibilities and the weight, I will always be their father, mm-hmm. like forever. When they all move out, and they will move out at sixteen, all of them <laughs> gone. Wait, sixteen? 
16. Ah, no, no, they're gone. 16. <laughs> that's it. They're gone. All of them. The youngest one, too. Get out of the house. Out you know, there. they're going to be gone, and he's got like six more years right. without them. So yeah. it's like, oh my God. They will never outgrow being my children. All they right. will always be my kids. And just because I have DNA with one of them, you know, when you're, when you commit to a relationship and really go all in, I mean, cause you know, you know, guys, and I'm sure women too, and, and everyone on, on the spectrum who are, who, you know, get into relationships and they're kind of like one legs out, you know, because it's kind of scary and they're like, hey, I'm just seeing how this feels. And they see how it feels for years and they never go all the way in. When you go all the way in, your brain chemistry changes. People that you allow into your heart and you really allow to affect, affect you, right? Like, like if your heart is a house, you got people who get to hang out on the porch. Mm-hmm. You got people who get to come on into your living room. But then you got people who go into your bedroom and into your attic. And those people, like, really affect your brain chemistry, which is why when things end, it, like, hurts so much. Mm. Because your brain shifted in its literal chemistry. Mm. And so... When you do that, it's almost thicker than DNA because it's really affecting you in a biological way that changes you. And I think that's so much bigger than just, well, I made this one. I, I, that's, that's our, whenever we get caught up into, I want to have kids because of my own lineage, mm-hmm. that's our ego. That's our survival instinct. That's our... If I don't do this, I don't exist anymore, mm-hmm. right? That's completely our primitive lizard brain stuff, our monkey gut. That's, that's what that is. Like we have to self-preserve, mm-hmm. right? It's also part of our black trauma, right? Like we're essentially still to this day living in a time where there's still genocide amongst our own people. Right. So there's this need to exist. And so we have, we were like, I got to have kids or else I'm not going to be here forever. Mm-hmm. And so that's our ego saying I have to survive and I feel that but still when you take in kids and you go these are my kids then they're your kids and that's it that's it that's it that's it whether they're blood or not they're yours Word. I want to shift gears a little bit and I yeah. want to talk about we had a show together about a month or so ago and uh, yeah. we were talking and uh, we started talking about mental health and I actually had yeah. did a poem about that and yeah. an area that I had struggled in especially during the a pandemic great poem. Thank you. Great Thank yeah. you very much. But I want to talk about, because that's something after I did that poem, you had come up to me, you're like, yo, this is something that I've been dealing with as well for a long yeah. time. And yeah. so I really want to explore that with you. Just want to let you know, I do have my first therapist appointment in a couple of weeks. Yes. So I'm super, super excited about oh, that. Oh, it's going to be great. Oh, yeah. great. I'm super excited. I'm super excited. Yeah. It took me forever because anyway, I don't want to yeah. get on all that, but it's, it's yeah. there. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I did want to explore to that and how... Uh, you dealing with mental health issues, how that comes into raising your children. Listen, if you are black and living in America, you need to be in therapy. It doesn't make any sense to be a human being who has any part of your DNA rooted in the black diaspora. Hmm. You need to have therapy because there's trauma. There's just trauma. And if you're a man and you've been raised in America with all the toxic masculinity, then you also have to be in therapy. Mm-hmm. And if you're an American who's grown up in a capitalistic, oppressive environment, then you have to, like, there's no excuse. I think to have being an American citizen requires therapy. You have to go at least once a year. Yeah. 
Yeah, so so I'm a big advocate for therapy. When I became a father, I recognized eventually that I had these fears, right? Like all of a sudden you're letting people into your heart and we live in a world that isn't always safe. I have brown children. Mm-hmm. And so they are inherently less safe because of that fact. And all of a sudden, before the pandemic, obviously I was we were taking our kids to school. And all of a sudden I was like, we don't have any gun laws that protect them. Like we don't. We I mean, as a matter of fact, we just had a judge overturn the the you know assault rifle ban yeah. in California because this judge thought it was unconstitutional. And I was like, oh my God. So that was recent. But before that, I was like, there's nothing protecting my kids from some lunatic who's just having an off day, rolling up into these schools and blasting on kids. And I just kept thinking about how, you know, you and I have done school shows. Uh-huh. I've done several schools. I've just walked on campus. Like the office was open. Uh-huh. There was no one in the office to sign me in. I'm waiting there. Yeah. I'm looking around and I'm just I'm like, all right, well, I'm a, I got to do my show. Yeah. I just walk to the assembly. Yeah. And I'm, and, I, and like, I'm like, where I'm like that, that what's protecting my children. Right. And I thought that those fears were something that everybody thinks about. And what I found out was that that wasn't the case as someone who's been a performer for most of my life, who still to this day has stage fright, who gets really caught up in, was it a good performance? Was it a good show? I, I, you know, it was really having kids and talking about these fears of my wife and with my therapist Mm -hmm. that they were like, hey, you have anxiety. And I was like, yeah, but it's normal. And they're like, yeah, but not the way you have it. (laughs) You know, like you don't know how to let the thoughts go. I'm working on it. I didn't. Mm -hmm. You know, I would you know, ruminate and think it out over and over and over and over and over again. And I don't sleep well, you know, because my brain doesn't turn off. So I need, I needed, you know, medication to help me go to sleep at night because I just wasn't sleeping. So I'd wake up stressed out because I didn't get a full eight hours. Plus I got kids and they need my attention. Mm-hmm. And then there was a cycle of like, when you don't sleep, you don't, you're not, you're not as healthy. So your body can't break down food. So I'm gaining more weight and all these things. And it's just like a cycle of like, I'm not living my best life because my thinking is toxic or because it's, you know, because I'm, I got this chemical imbalance because of whatever's going on in my, in my body. Mm-hmm. And really, it was going to therapy and my therapist going, hey, you're not crazy. You just may suffer from depression and anxiety. And it just may be those things that's creating this unhealthy cycle in your life. And as soon as we were able to look at that and they were like, you know, it's okay, but most people don't think like this. Hmm. And most people are able to have a thought, put it down and be productive. And I was like, oh, okay. And then as we began to break down my anxiety even more, I began to realize all the other areas in my life where my obsessive compulsive behavior got in the way of me showing up. I had never looked at it. I had never, Hmm. I hadn't, no one had ever looked at it as being unhealthy in a way of like, hey, you may have a problem that's a problem not, not rooted in your fault, right? People say, don't think about it. I can't help it. Right. Right. So, you know, having kids and allowing, allowing myself to recognize how 
much I wanted to show up for them and how my thinking and my worrying was preventing me from being present really made me take my health more serious. And, and you know, I got on medication, hmm. right? And, you know, I'm not on like anything that's super heavy and intense, but I'm just on stuff that helps me like level out and keep the day going. And also it helps me practice thinking differently, mm-hmm. right? It's almost like I needed the medication to just be there to give me permission to have a different agenda mentally right. than what I have rehearsed. Because we, you know, everything that we are is just a rehearsed dance that we do until we get a different partner. Now I have a different dance partner and now I'm rehearsing a different routine. And that, and that is... You know, when I have a thought that I feel myself kind of getting obsessed over, I go, wait a minute, what's the truth of this? And how much control do I have in this? Right? If I get those answers that are, hey, you don't have a lot of control. There's not much you can do, but just kind of be present and be here now. Well, then that's where I have to go and accept that. You know, it's 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 um challenging. It's not always fun. It doesn't always feel good, but it helps me move through the day. And it also helps my art, right? Because I think, you know, we're both writers. And mm-hmm. I think one of the things that we, maybe I do this more than I've been people I know, but I will write stuff that is more about the catharsis than the audience. And I think having to learn how my brain thinks and what is real and what is obsessive has helped me be a better writer and go, oh, this is just me processing versus this is about this piece is about the audience and me, right? Because there's stuff that's about you. Right. But then it's stuff about all of us. And like the all of us stuff is the stuff you want to share. Right. You know, so anyway, so, so, but, but being a father and being a parent, especially nowadays, especially during COVID, especially, you know, as the world has become more sensitive and aware of racial injustice, recognizing that as an activist, as someone who is passionate, it's important that I be clear and be in control of how I'm thinking uh, has become very important to me. What was that conversation like with your wife? Being that obviously you have, mm-hmm. you have a whole family, someone like myself that has been dealing with this. I'm dealing with this by myself in the sense that I don't have a spouse. I don't have children. Yeah. What was that like when you had this conversation dealing with these issues? And then what was the outcome with that conversation? So I couldn't have imagined a perfect partner, more mm-hmm. perfect than Cynthia. She also has anxiety. So as a matter of fact, it was kind of like in recognizing her own trauma and us oh, really? kind of talking about her stuff. Had she not explored it herself before the conversation? Not until we met. And it was really kind of like our commitment and our marriage to each other that helped us recognize where the work was. It was in moments where we, it was tense and uncomfortable. Where we'd go, okay, what's real right now? Is your trauma being triggered because how I'm showing up mm-hmm. or or are you interpreting this moment and that's triggering? And so whatever that was, we had to look at a lot of our stuff. We're big ther- therapy people. So we got we have a couple's therapist mm. we also talk to because, I mean, <laughs> we listened to Michelle Obama read her book. We were like, yes, couple couple counseling like <laughs> Michelle did it with Obama. We're like, well, they're doing it. Right. You know. We should do it. So, you know, we have that and, and that helps us hear each other differently. And it helps us recognize like I'm just projecting or she's just projecting because of our fear and insecurities or because of our, you know, our past that we haven't forgiven yet and whatever it is. Seeing her stuff 
help me see my own stuff mm, and yeah. vice versa. Like, again, I really believe that the more people you invite to your heart, the more it mirrors you get, to, you get held up. So it's like a support system for the both of you in essence. Yeah. Yeah, really. But just being able to see it, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you make your friends, your therapist, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes your friends are terrible therapists. But, <laughs> right, like, uh, right. Right. They're like, I think you should do this. Like, yeah, I should smoke more weed. You're right. You're right. You know, and it's like, well, maybe not. Right. And so uh, I should drink this Corona, but I feel like we have been really wonderful mirrors for each other and not like a funhouse mirror but like a real clear Legit. i yeah like i see you mm-hmm. because you're letting me you're letting me be seen again like we are very transparent with our children hmm. like we do not talk to them like they're little kids you know we talk about what's going on in the streets we mm-hmm. talk about you know what what brown and black trauma is so they can see it and identify it. We talk about gender normatives in our house all the time. We break down stereotypes. We do it all. You know, my, my son being the genius he is, the, the oldest one, he's got social anxieties because he, you know, he'd rather be by, by himself. And he's totally been working through that because we have a safe space where he talks about it. You know, he he's very clear about, he wants to be on time to stuff. Like he really, he really, really hates being late. And we were talking about it, I think, a couple of weeks ago because we were driving him to like his one of his now that things are opened up. He was going to like a, a house party kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And he's like, look, when I'm running late and he's 13, it's like when I'm running late, it's the worst thing in the world for me. He's <laughs> like, I just want to be there. And I was like, you know what? I, I respect that you're sp- expressing it. And, and he said it in a way that he, we, he where he understood he knew that it wasn't the worst thing in the world. But he was like, it just feels that way. Mm. And I said, cool. So if you can identify the feeling and recognize that there's the feeling and then the truth, which is what he was doing, then you're walking the journey. You're walking the battle. You're, you know, you're working on it. And so we talk about everything in our house. Feelings come up all the time. You know, why are you feeling that way? What would be the solution? Do you think this is real? You know, and, and they're making up their minds and going, you know what? Actually, probably is this this is by the truth. And, and so because of that, we're just a house that is constantly reflecting mm-hmm. on self and showing up and making safe space to process and heal and figure out. Do that. No, I think that's great. You said something earlier when we started on the journey of mental health and therapy, and you basically adamantly said that all people of color need therapy. Like it's yeah. just something that we need because yeah. of whether it's past trauma, whether it's present trauma, things that are, you know, uh, it's passed down through generation. Like there's just so many things that are encompassing when it comes to what we deal with as a people. Why do you think that? we tend to have a lot of trepidation when it does come to taking therapy or or seeking therapy. Well, I mean, I look, I think a lot of this rooted in slavery and I think a lot of it's still attributed to the fact that we couldn't show weakness. You know, we had to persevere, you know, because of slavery, black people chose survival, Hmm. right? Black people chose they chose to be family. Like, you know, you had children who were being born from slaves and being sold off immediately into other families. And you had men and women stepping up and raising those kids as their own. There was no room for mental issues. There was no room for 
I don't feel well. I'm sick. Like that, that, that led to death, right? That led to being deemed as weak. And if you were, if you were weak property, you were a waste of space and you were, you were killed. And so as a survival mechanism, black people chose strength. And so there was this immediate need to look over any sort of mental ailment, physical ailment. I mean, black people in this country have been led to be ashamed of not only mental health, but physical health. Mm. We don't want to talk about heart stuff, about Mm. blood stuff. Like there's all kinds of history of like, we don't want. And then you got to think about, you know, we were experimented on. So then there's a whole like, do I even, I can't even trust the medical field. Right. Then you've got the history of feminine hygiene in America, where black women were experimented on. Like gynecological health started with white slave owners using women as a means of figuring out how to ensure that kids could keep being born. Wow. So I got to have a healthy woman. How do I get it? Oh, let's, let's experiment on her genitals. You know, like that's the history of health in this country. So we don't trust the medical field. So not only is it, I don't, I can't show that I'm, that I have weaknesses because I might get thrown away, but also where do I go to get those things treated? And so there's just been a history of, we don't know, we're, we're afraid of it. So we don't talk about it. When you look at the cis male agenda and how it has oppressed black men, you look at how there's been this constant imagery of black men have to be big and strong. And we were, you know, we were put against each other and we fought each other on the slave fields for entertainment. And like all that became, I have to be the strongest, biggest, scariest. Well, there's no room for, I'm, I'm, I'm sick. I'm unhealthy. And that, and like that. Our, our value was predicated on that. Yeah, exactly. And so you look at all that and it's not surprising that so many of our people do not look to health practitioners as a means of support and being saved. It's very sad. There's a reason why more brown and black people died during the pandemic. And a lot of it has to do with well, first of all, it, nobody cares if it's happening to our people and to have a safe to white people. Right. Like, oh, now it's now it's now we're now in trouble. Right. You know, so you know, we were being affected more and, and obviously you have a lack of resources in communities as well. Mm-hmm. But a lot of us weren't even going in to get checked. So it's it's very sad. So I feel like that has a lot to do with it. And then I just think to be human is to protect yourself. Mm. So when you talk about what it means to have a mental illness or a mental disability, the tropes of what that means are so heavy, right? I mean, the fact that we looked at mental disability as a joke for so long right. uh, in this country and in this world, well, why would anyone want to admit that? Uh, you know, like, what is it, you know, like, what is it to be depressed is to be mocked, you know, and and to right. feel have anxiety and to have that to feel that on on such a scale that is debilitating. Well, it's, it's it's to be mocked for anybody, you know. And so I feel like we still haven't gotten to a place where mental illnesses have even been taken as serious as it needs to be. So people don't even feel comfortable owning up to it. To have a mental disability or to need assistance 
in that realm does not mean you're a weak person. Right. It just means you're a person who needs help. And to right. ask for help is to mean you are lacking something. And that's unfortunate. It's very unfortunate. And I'm just thinking as you were talking, I'm thinking about my own personal life and struggle with it. I've never wanted to, I mean, I'm very recently as yeah. you know, a 40 plus year old man willing to say, yeah, I struggle with mental illness or I struggle with depression. And it took me that long because that very reason, I didn't want to be perceived as weak. I yeah. didn't want to be perceived to my family as less than. You know, I grew up in a, and I explained this, I know we were talking about this. I grew up in a Christian household and yeah. it's like, even things um, are very taboo in that type of setting. When you deal yeah. with mental, it's like, oh no, well you, you need to pray about it. You know? And it's like, well, if I get shot in my arm, you know, with yeah. a gun, I'm going to go to the hospital. I'm not going right. to pray <laughs> on that wound and be like, oh, I hope that God kills me. No, I'm going to go right. to the hospital. I'm going to yeah. get checked on. I'm going to get it fixed yeah. and get it taken care of. Why wouldn't yeah. I do that with mental health? Why don't I do with that? Your with your mind. Exactly. Yeah. Like with your brain. Exactly. Look, I got a friend who I've known for most of my life and she is in the entertainment industry and she's, she's super huge and like very well known. And we don't talk anymore because she had a full on mental breakdown mm. and she became diagnosed as being bipolar schizophrenic. And the community that surrounded her was like, we'll pray for her. And I was like, N okay, cool. Pray. Yeah, great. Yeah. But also when's the visit to the doctor? Like when right. are we getting the medication? In addition. And, and it, yeah. in addition too. And I think, yeah, you know, if someone gets cancer, we'll put up a collection plate for the health bills. You know, we'll make a GoFundMe account for the chemo. If someone gets the, you know, is an amputee, we'll, we'll help. But it's always about health and hospital bills. We'll take care of it. But if you have problems in your mind, mm. we just, for whatever reason, go, okay, well, you need to meditate. Right. It's like, sure, maybe, <laughs> but also maybe some medication too. Right. And, and a visit to the doctor, you know, it's deep. Yeah, it is. I feel like there is a shift that is yeah. happening. I'm starting to hear more people be open about it, people of color, especially through the pandemic, because so many did struggle with that, yeah. including yeah. myself. So I think there is uh, more of a push that I'm seeing in the Black community to you know, seek therapy, to really look at that because it is very, very important. And people are understanding how important it is because like you said, it's your mind. It essentially moves everything else in your body um, that controls yeah. everything else. So why wouldn't you wanna make sure that that's in the best shape possible? Yeah, 100%, I agree, 100%, so, yeah. Yeah, man, but um, I appreciate you um, really exploring that and really talking about that because I think it is so, so very important. I just want to go to this this poem that you did. I have a white dad um, <laughs> on a lighter yeah. note, and yeah. I want to talk about your dad really quickly because yeah. obviously you have a white dad. You do it several times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you touched on a little bit about like you know him coming with the tight shorts and the fanny pack. Oh man, right he was never cool. Never cool. <laughs> Not cool at all. At all. Have you adopted any of the principles that you had growing up with him or have you gone completely different in, in how you raise your children? I tell you what. So, so this is a great question. So my dad is a loving person. He's a big guy. He, you know, he looks like a Jewish Santa Claus, you know, <laughs> like he, he, if you hug my dad, he's, he's one of those long huggers. He'll bring you in and he'll squeeze you. And he's a big guy. And I learned how to love from my father, 100%. Like my, my father loves very deeply. He's a very passionate and f deep feeling man. 
I never had the masculine monolith held over my, my head growing up in my household. I got, I definitely, you know, went through the trope stuff that most kids go through in America is about what it was a man supposed to be. Uh-huh. But for the most part, I was able to, to discover what being a man meant on my own, my own terms and define that for myself. So in regards to how I love my children, I definitely feel like my father inspired that. In regards to holding space for them, I think I'm very different than my father full transparency. So, so my wife and I are, are agnostic. And although we're Jewish, um, we're not religious Jews. And, and I grew up very spiritual. And she grew up as well being very, you know, she grew up Catholic, she's Mexican, and then she became Jewish. And so, you know, so God played uh, various roles in both of our lives growing up, that it doesn't play anymore as much. And our kids believe in God. And we totally hold space for that. You know, we present to our family, what our values are, what our morals are, and we kind of give them space to define themselves. And we love them through that. Mm -hmm. And I feel like one of the things that I fought with my dad and my mom a lot was them trying to get me to be them. And that just didn't work when I was growing up. Like my parents got married when they were 19 years old. They were both born in 1950 were married for for several years and then had me when they were 30 and the kind of world that they grew up in in the 50s 60s and 70s was very different than the world that I was growing up in the 80s and 90s you know what I'm saying and so and so it was very clear that they even though my mom was an educator and even though my father was is, is it wasn't is an, an activist and singer and community leader they didn't understand the relating of young people at that time mm. and there was no room for me to be what i wanted to be and that was very challenging and like frustrating and so like i just wanted to to express freely and so that is very different i think uh, and one of the ways that I'm that I'm raising my children, they they really get to discover who they are. They get to wear what they want to wear. My son wore and still wears only a bathrobe and a t-shirt. He has not worn pants. Wait, and You're talking about in the house? In the house, I'm talking about outside too. Like he <laughs> we've been outside a few times, and he's like, I'm good, and he just walks out the house with the robe, t-shirt on, and, and underwear, but he has not worn pants. And 15 months. It is incredible. I We forgot that he grew. We had to go somewhere fancy. Uh-huh. Like, put those pants on. He was like, oh, I can't fit them anymore. He had a growth spurt. We didn't know about it. Because really? Because he had he been wearing Yeah, he had been wearing he, he, You know, he was doing Zoom learning. It's just this. Yeah. He was like, I'm not putting on pants. He wears the same Batman robe every single day. <laughs> it is stinky and I think stuck to his skin. But he wears it every day. My mom is very close to us. And she'll come over all the time and she's like, why is Ami still wearing? I'm like, this is what he wants to do, you know? And so you can see it, <laughs> you can see it how she'll come over and like police the kids. And we're like, mom, back off. It's fine. Oh, yeah. They're great. You know? And so it's like, we're giving them a lot of freedom to discover their voices. And as a result, they are some of the most creative and smart and beautiful people that I've ever met in my life. That's dope. You know? Yeah. That's dope. Lastly, I want to talk about uh, advice and what advice would you give to, let's say, an up-and-coming father or someone that is kind of, you know, the trajectory that you took where 
they're marrying into a household where there's children already. What advice would you give them? I would say be interested in what you don't know and be okay with saying I don't know. And be okay with maybe your kids have the answer and you don't. Mm. And I think that's been something so powerful. Because look, as a nerd and as an, as an intellectual, I like to know everything. And I want to be the smart guy in the room. And you want your kids to look up to you and be like, my dad's a smart. But sometimes my kids know more than I do. Giving them the space to be like, you know, makes them feel good about what they know. Being parents that allow your kids to find the answer and allowing your kids to feel like they know stuff and you don't, I don't know, it's, it's something empowering about that. So I say to all future parents, be okay with not knowing, be curious and finding the answer and be interested in letting go of who you think you are. Ladies and gentlemen, Joshua Silverstein. <laughs> yeah, man. Oh, man. That was great, man. I appreciate you. I appreciate you, man. That was dope. Yeah. That My pleasure. Dope. Yeah, man. Anytime. Yeah. Um, before I let you go, I want to uh, give you the opportunity to talk about, I know you have some real cool things coming up, and I want you to be able to talk about that and also where people can find you and all that good stuff. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, the easiest way to find me, of course, is on Instagram. It's at the Joshua Silverstein. Same thing on Facebook, uh, which is where I'm usually at doing social stuff. Um, I'm on Twitter, kind of, but don't worry about that. Uh, and the thing that I am really trying to spread the word on these days, depending on when this comes out, is Virtual CAS. And Virtual CAS is a virtual camp that's happening from July 5th through July 31st. There's all kinds of virtual art classes and events happening. You could take classes with your kids, with your family. It's literally all ages. There's classes for adults and classes for children. One of the classes that I'm really stoked about that's being offered is a class um, that's just called chess. And it teaches chess to kids ages three to 13 through oh, wow. storytelling. And it's super amazing. There's writing classes and visual art classes and theater classes and music classes all online, all for an affordable price. Take one, take them all. Um, but again, it's happening July 5th through the 31st. You can register for those classes right now at bit.ly forward slash virtual CAS. Fresh. Yeah. C-A-Z. Yeah. That is yeah. fresh. Yeah. Again, Joshua Silverstein, everybody. Of course, uh, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Again, this is Lynn Gonzalez, a.k.a. Saint. And until we speak again, God bless and take care. Colors of Fatherhood is produced by Josh Rodriguez and Saintly Productions. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast so you can be updated on all future episodes. Make sure to follow us on social media at Stay on the Mic and at Colors of Fatherhood. For all of your inquiries or booking needs, please contact us at saintlybooking at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.